This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Do you know that feeling where you feel like you haven't lived up to your expectations of what your life was going to look like or what your parents' expectations were going to look like in your life? Um, and, or, are you satisfied with the military career you had? however long it lasted? <clears throat> Do you feel like you were substandard? Um, Do you feel like you were a square peg in a round hole? Do you feel like you loved your service more than your service loved you? <clears throat> Those are just a couple of the themes that I thought were interesting from my conversation with Stephanie Klein. Stephanie is a former Marine, she was, growing up, an Air Force brat. She is now both a defense contractor and a playwright in the D.C. area. She has been a stand-up comic. She has studied playwriting at the Kennedy Center at D.C.'s Shakespeare Theater Company at Chicago Dramatists. She's also a Dramatist Guild member. And um, she recently won... Veterans Repertory Theater's 10-minute playwriting competition for her play Pot Shots, which is the story of a husband, a former husband and wife, exes, who are both Marines, and she visits him in the hospital after an accident. <clears throat> and that's where I will leave it. Some of the things that stand out about Pot Shots, having read it, um, I mean, her, di- her ear for dialogue, her humor, um, the fact that you're dealing with, uh, you have a play that deals with quote-unquote veterans issues, um, or I should say has a setting that would seem like it's dealing with quote-unquote veterans issues, um, but is just entertaining, and then touches on veterans issues, but it isn't boring, Brussels sprouts, predictable. You know, it's um, it's a fun ride, touching ride, moving ride, funny ride. But it's um, 
I don't know. It's an exciting little piece. And the fact that Stephanie is so new to the arts, <clears throat> I think she started her stand-up career in 2016. Um, you know, I don't know. Foreshadow some great things to come from Stephanie. Um, Pot Shots will be getting featured this year uh, in Veterans Repertory Theater's uh, whatever season. I can't think of the word. I don't have words right now. Anyway, uh, it was great to sit down and talk with Stephanie. I, I was so moved by some of the stuff she said. It really, um, her degree of self-knowledge and her transparency and candor about things that most people would, you know, maybe hesitate um, to have as much candor about. Um, it was, you know, inspiring and revealing. And I think is something that a lot of folks are going to relate to. I just was uh, so impressed with her and with uh, her clarity and with her talent and with the ride that both her military and her art career have gone on. Two very different trajectories, uh, but both with a lot to inspire and a lot to learn from. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. And this is Stephanie Klein's profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Um, where are you now? Are you in DC? DC I'm right area? On, yeah, I'm in the DC area. Okay, gotcha. And are you from there originally? You know, I've been here since 2016, and it's the longest I've lived anywhere. So I kind of consider myself from here. Yeah, you know, I grew up in the Air Force and moved around a bit. So this is as much roots as I as I've got. Got you. Yeah, nothing nothing is permanent as a temporary location that you just end up staying at forever and ever. <laughs> right? I feel yeah. like the DC area does that to people. Um, let's start then at the beginning. Where were you born? New Orleans. Okay. All right. And this was on a post? Was it because your parents were in the Air Force? Or what was the story? Where were you in New Orleans? Nope. So this was before. So both my parents met. They grew up, met, and got married in Las Vegas. And uh, my dad was an attorney, got a job in New Orleans. Okay. And right around the time that I was born, um, I think my mom got fired and my dad got laid off on the same day. So my dad said, um, well, I guess I'm going to join the Navy and became an Air Force officer. (laughs) He must, I mean, was he still, I'm assuming relatively young, this, he couldn't have been super advanced in his law career. Who lays off a lawyer? That's crazy. I mean, that (laughs) seems like, (laughs) it seems like that you're just leading with your chin. If you're laying off a lawyer, I feel like that, (laughs) you know, that's not the wisest choice. Okay. So, um, so at that point. Were you living on, on post? Were, were folks on post when you got when you were born? No. Uh, so I, um, I think I was three by the time everything kind of got into motion. Where we actually okay uh, moved. Uh, so it might have been might have been like a little after I was born. Uh, he went to Maxwell Air Force Base for the training. Okay. I guess they that the Fork and Knife Officer School, and then my earliest memories 
you know, we went to Williams Air Force Base after that. That was the first post. I have vague memories of that. My first memories didn't really kind of start until we moved to Ankara, Turkey. And we didn't live, so I know there's was a post to Izmir, but we were actually at the embassy. Uh, so we lived wow. a little far from the embassy in a building that was all Americans. You know, it was during the Cold War, so everyone loved Americans. You know, we were really safe. Uh, we lived across the street from the DDR, so the, the East German really? embassy. Wow. Uh, yeah, so those are my first memories, and they are still some of my best. Was that a three-year stint in Ankara? Uh, we were there for two and a half. Two and a half. Um, what do you remember of your time there? I mean, that that must have been, I mean, that's an awesome place to spend any time growing up. But for you, what stood out the most? You know, I, I was actually able to pick up languages pretty quickly. So we had we had a maid, an, an extra, and you know, I mean, it's six years old, whatever your vocabulary is, but I was fluent in Turkish for a six-year-old at that point, wow. which was, uh, so I picked it up really well. I remember going to school with armed guards on the school bus. Uh, there were all kinds of traveling that we did all through Europe. I mean, I remember the parades that they would have for different festivals where they would parade goats through the streets before slaughter. Uh, sometimes the kids would actually get to witness the slaughter. Uh, I remember some parties that were thrown at embassies. You know, the kids would be allowed to go for a little bit. Uh, but one of the biggest things that I remember is, you know, there were some bomb threats at the officers club. And, and it was always one of those, you know, when we're overseas, we take on the threat so that the homeland is safe. So that's kind of what you grew up with. Like, oh, it's just something that you deal with when you're abroad because the United States is safe. Uh, so that was probably the the biggest thing. But I absolutely loved living in Turkey. It was just such a cool environment. I, I can imagine. What was the split between time you spent with Americans and Turks while you were over there? Was it were you kind of around Turkish people day in day out, including your caregiver, or was it also, or were you mostly around Americans except for her? I was mostly around Americans. Okay. Um, so we went to school on the embassy property. Uh, there, so the the guards uh, were a mix of American and Turkish. Uh, you know, my uh, our our housekeeper, our maid Maneksha, she would sometimes bring her kids to play with me. Sometimes I would go over there and play with their kids. So my interaction with the locals was mostly contained to when we went to the bazaars. Okay. Uh, yeah. And the cool story, we hadn't gone to Ankara yet. We were in Istanbul. And one of the things it, during the Cold War, it was always really cool to see how different cultures absorbed American culture and what they thought of us. Mm -hmm. And there was a definite understanding that women ruled the homes because they were the purchasers. So that was kind of the, the understanding that if you wanted to get after American money, you appealed to the women, right? Instead oh. of going after the man. And we were walking through a bazaar and this man just picked me up and carried me off. And my parents, I mean, just picked me up, carried me off in front of my parents. And so of course they followed him. They followed him into a rug store where I was sitting. I was happy as a clam. They had given me some candy, were playing with me. And my parents were freaking out and they're like, come look at our rugs. So in, in an appeal of like, oh, if we get them into the shop. So it's just really wow. you know, cool to kind of uh, not cool at the time, but thinking <laughs> back on it, um, you know, I was perfectly fine. I wasn't, I wasn't right, scared at all, right. uh, but just kind of those things of just how, 
how different cultures tried to bend to America during the Cold War and, and tried to get our dollars. And it, you know, it was just a fun time to live in and, you know, pretty safe. Uh, it was my first exposure to Marines at the embassy. The embassy. Uh, and I do remember my dad saying, look at those uniforms and stay away. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting. What, what what traveling did you do? You said you went throughout Europe while you were based there. Did you go through Greece? Did you go east? Everywhere. Uh, so this was also in the time where Space A was still safe and available. And it, you know, pre-9-11, you could just get on a flight anywhere. But and also trains were super cheap. So we went to Greece, Hungary. My folks went to Romania, um, Italy, Spain, France. I mean, everywhere in Europe. And we have family in London, so we would visit them pretty often as well. We didn't travel too much into Asia until I was in high school. My mom and I would go uh, and visit. But when we lived in Turkey, we got to travel everywhere. It was amazing. Were you there long enough in these in these locations for them to make impacts, or was it kind of all at that age, just kind of getting hit with a fire hose of like all these different cultures, and it was just kind of just this general multicultural experience, but without you know too much specificity because you're kind of bopping around from one place to another. So some of them were, but we were lucky enough that we would travel multiple times to them over you know multiple instances. So okay. uh, there are a lot of times my my dad is very efficient. And so it's one of those, we have 72 hours. We are going to do nine countries in 72 hours and you will sleep after that time. And so, you know, it was kind of a, a National Lampoon's vacation montage <laughs> sometimes. Uh, you know, he's also the the dad that was like, we're going to walk up the stairs at, um, you know, at the Eiffel Tower. Like, we're not doing we're not doing this. We're going to walk up the stairs. My mom was like, have fun, Stephanie. <laughs> like, I'm old enough to be able to say no. Uh, so there were some places. So we went to Madrid and then we went back to the South of Spain. So there were a lot of places that we just got to experience again and again, if we really liked it. Uh, my dad's fluent French. So obviously we spent a good amount of time in, in Paris and whereabouts uh, in France. I would say the places that made the biggest impact to me were right after the wall came down. So we, we'd already moved back to the States, but we went to visit after the wall came down. And we started in East Germany and drove to Prague and then through Budapest. And they were just beautiful towns. But at the time, I just remember everything in grayscale. So you're on the west side of the curtain. It's like beautiful, lush German yeah. forest. And then like it's kind of as soon as you cross over, like everything just went into sepia and gray. Um, so that was kind of a lasting impact. That's wild. Okay, let's get to that. I just want to ask, though, about your dad. How did he? How was he taking the Navy life after the gear shift? Well, I mean, he, so he said he was going to join the Navy, but he was an Air Force officer for. Oh, he was okay. All right, oh, yeah. gotcha. Okay, uh, so he joined the Air Force. Uh, he retired as a general. I, I mean, he loved it. He got to do law. He got to travel. He got to use languages. Okay, all right. So it was an easy transition. There was yeah. not a lot of okay. Gotcha. Um, when you came back to the states after that posting, how did it feel to you? Did you feel like a fish out of water for a little bit? Definitely. It was tough because we moved to New Jersey. We were at McGuire Air Force Base before it was part of the, the joint base. And while there were some Turkish communities, we didn't really live close to that. So I lost a lot of that language, which really sucks. Uh, but I, you know, one of the things about growing up in the military is that you just learn to adapt. You learn you have limited time to make friends, establish a routine, establish a life and get with it. 
And I was able to do that. But also being an only child, I can entertain myself really well. <laughs> well, that's fair. Yeah, that's very true. Um, but it seems like the travel bug never left your family. You still were making cause to go travel. seems like every chance you got. Oh, yeah. There's, you know, we didn't pay for a lot. I mean, my family, you know, my mom was a full-time nurse, so she made a very good living. And my dad, uh, you know, an Air Force officer. So we were definitely comfortable. We didn't spend a lot. We weren't car people. We weren't really, Mm -hmm. you know, horse people or clothes people. We were travel people. That's where we spent our money. And the military provided a really great option to travel to a lot of places for free or for very, uh, very cheaply. And so we traveled any chance we got. You know, when I um, when I was 18, my parents were like, well, what do you want for your birthday? And at that point, we'd already been to five continents. And so I was like, all right, I got Australia and Antarctica left. And so I said, hey, all I want for my birthday is just the promise before I turn 21, I want to hit all seven continents. Like that was, you know, so that's where my focus was gotcha. you know, to do gotcha. that. Uh, and they made it happen. Uh, but like that's that was the focus for our family. We wanted to travel. Prior to, well, I guess now, when you kind of identify the DC area as kind of home base, where did you think you were from? Where, where, what was the most formative time that you spent growing up? Was it in Jersey? Probably because at the time, that's where I spent the most amount of time. So we lived there uh, right after Turkey. Uh, and then we moved to Panama. Okay. Uh, now defunct Howard Air Force Base. Wow. Uh, so we lived there for two years. Uh, and then around the time that Noriega went away, that's when we, uh, you know, we came back to Arizona. So, so you we were, were you there for Just Cause? Were you there yes. when that happened? Really? What was that like? I I mean, I was minor 10, so it didn't, like, none of it really meant anything to me. I, I knew nothing that was going on. Uh, really? But it was, Panama was our least favorite place. It was very hot. And it was very... A lot of people were really angry and it it was really bad for us because we kept getting all of these like bug infestations and we're just itchy, all like just mosquitoes and all the little sand fleas. So it was really hard for us physically. But also my mom, who was working at one of the preeminent heart hospitals in the States at Deborah Heart Lung Center, New Jersey, she said, well, I'm not, I'm almost vested. I'm not giving up that opportunity. So my mom basically deployed six months out of the year when we were in Panama. So For a preteen girl to like not have a mom around for six months out of the year. And this was about the start of the time. Like my dad and I started not to really get along. You know, we have a, we have a very rocky um, history. It was really tough, you know, being without a mom, but thankfully, you know, there were plenty of people around. We had a good community. And again, we had a housekeeper. So I learned almost fluent Spanish, you know, for, for being an 11 year old. Uh, and we also learned it at the DOD schools, but it was probably the toughest for for everyone. Interesting. Just uh, staying on the personal for a second before we get to the geopolitical. What was, what is that dynamic like as a preteen girl with now just a dad around in a foreign country? What are your influences at that point? Is it just the DOD school? I mean, where do you get your influences from? I, you know, I had to lean on my friends and my friends' moms, you know, which is basically what, you know, my, you know, my dad, like he, he tried the best he could as it, but he's just like, I don't know what you need. And so my, um, 
you know, the, our housekeeper, like she would help with my hair. I had hair down past my butt at that time. It was like super thick, which was also awful in the jungle. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when I went up to New Jersey to visit my mom, we just cut it all off, you know, and my dad was furious. And so it's kind of that dynamic of just like the realities of being an 11 year old girl with all of this hair, like, you're not going to braid my hair, dad. You're not going to help with that. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was definitely the start of a butting heads with my dad for sure. Who were you at that point? Were you finding yourself as an artist? Were you kind of being a jock? Like what were you gravitating towards? What were you into? Honestly, I didn't really fall into art until 2016. So wow. it's okay. still relatively new. So at that time, I was a brat, you know, I was, uh, I was really smart for my age because I got to travel because my dad really reinforced that. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of discipline. It's not that I was a badly behaved kid. I was just kind of an asshole. I played, I tried to play soccer. I was not very good at it. I remember, uh, other than the Marine Corps, the only time that I've ever been punched in the face, uh, it was, um, a co-ed team of like 16 and under and the coach's dad, the coach was a staff sergeant. So again, there's like that dynamic too. Yeah. Um, his son got mad at me because I could not play soccer to save my life. So he punched me in the face one day. And, um, you know, my, my, my dad and I don't speak. We haven't spoken since 2008. And, but there are moments where he was a true dad, where I remember him, you know, as a, you know, I was an officer going to that staff sergeant, like either you can punch your kid in the face or I'll do it, wow. uh, yeah. you know, to try to defend me. Yeah. But it's, you know, those kind of small things. And, you know, there was always all kinds of wildlife to look at. So, you know, all kinds of fun field trips, but there were also moments. So Panama obviously being divided by the canal, divided by the bridge of Americas, you know, the part that was in South America and the part was in Central America. Yeah. There were always a lot of protests and so there were times that we would be on field trips or for soccer trips, and we would get stuck on the bridge for hours because there were anti-America protests going on. And so there was a little bit of fear with that. You know, sometimes it gets routine, but it never really leaves you. I'm like, oh God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die on a bus for a game that I don't even care about. <laughs> it's <just kind> of <laughs> the worst. Yeah, that adds uh, a whole new color to co-ed soccer. That is yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> um it seems like that, I mean, it's not surprising, but it does seem like having a constant mindset of situational awareness and security protocols was kind of ingrained in you almost from birth. Like it seems with all that travel with constantly being in an embassy environment, am I wrong? Was that a big part of your bandwidth? Not at all. From the time I could speak, you know, anytime we would go to a foreign country, no matter what it is, no matter how short amount of time I needed to learn. Yes. No, please. Thank you. Where's the bathroom? And where's the American embassy? I had to know that, you know, before we got off the plane, my dad would make sure that we knew that. And when anytime we would go someplace, whether it was New York City or you know, Brussels, like here is the location in case we get separated. This is where you come find me. And well, even always like, had a rally point. Always, like, even on a cruise oh. ship, like no matter what, like this is how you earn your independence when you can prove to me that you can make it back here. Uh, and, you know, at the time you're like, come on, dad, just let me go. But, you know, it was a really helpful, really helpful tool. And it's something that I've used when I travel with other people, you know, in college, I took a very ill-fated trip with, uh, I, I was a, on the rowing team 
uh, co-ed rowing team. And so the other coxswains and I, we were like, let's go to Europe. You know, one of us was learning German. I knew enough Spanish. The other one was learning Italian. So we're like, we're going to do it. We're going to go to um, Vienna and we're going to go to Venice. And those two girls fell apart <laughs> the moment we got onto foreign soil. They'd never been out of the country. Yeah. So I essentially had to be the mom uh, and take care of the both of them. And in that situation, I was like, okay, that this was, this was helpful in knowing that. Talking about Panama. Um, so it sounds like this was the first time you, there was really a, a leveling up of the fear and of kind of the awareness of anti-American sentiment violence, all that. Um, what did that mean for you? Like how did, what imprint did that leave on you besides the, the, you know, security consciousness and what have you, um, were you defensive about America? Were you, were, was there a sense of, uh, these poor people? I mean, what, what, what how did that hit you? Like what, what resi- uh, residual impact did that leave with you to see that kind of vitriol now face to face at that young age? So for, for better or worse, I was raised within DOD. You know, I was raised within yeah. the military industrial complex. Yeah. So I was very much a kid of like, screw all these other people, America first, America right. Right. You know, this is, you know, growing up when you go into movie theaters, you do the Pledge of Allegiance, you do the, you know, the national yeah. anthem before movies. This is, you know, the first time I went to a civilian movie theater where they didn't do that. It's like, what what is happening? Like, how can they just start the movie? So I was, and it's not that my, my parents, you know, my, and my dad, especially in the Air Force, it's not that either of them were super gung-ho America, you know, right, and right. just blind to everything else. But for me, just being so exposed to it, you know, the U.S. could do no wrong. Right. And right. so it was just, you know, I, it didn't matter what anyone was protesting about in my, you know, right. 10, 11 year old mind, they were wrong. America was right. That's why we have a base here. It's because people can't do stuff on their own. And that's, you know, it took a really long time to kind of dismantle that and look and see the reality. And I'm sure that's probably pretty similar for a lot of people who may not have traveled before, go and enlist. And they're like, yeah, America. And then they start seeing what's happening, realities on the ground. And they're like, oh, shit, that's okay. Maybe, maybe we're not right all the time. Did it make you curious seeing, seeing just the anger in the streets of the protests? Was, was there any curiosity or was, or nope. was it just white noise? I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed to say it, but like, no, no. I was not. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I don't say this with any judgment at all. Uh, Cause I think there's, there's arguments to be had about that, but no, I think um, it's definitely interesting to hear how that resonated um, at that time. And at that age to be surrounded by that. Um, when just cause happened so i mean again i'm basing this off of you know books and magazines where they're focused on it so it sounds like the whole country was engulfed in conflict when we when we came in but that wasn't the case you were pretty much oblivious to what was going on yeah i mean my life was on howard air force base and fort kobe and every once in a while we'd have to go to you know fort clayton which is going to cross the bridge i believe it's fort clayton across the bridge uh, really, the only time that we got out and traveled, um, we got scuba certified. You know, right. when when I was ten, so we would go to the beaches and whatnot. Okay. Um, but we didn't, we just didn't spend a lot of time. So, of course, you know, in the military, there there are always 
I'm not sure what the equivalent, like the MAR admin, so the Marine um, you know, administrative notices, and I'm not sure what the equivalent is for, for any of those services, but of places you can't go, right? Like, hey, this country's like blacklist. This, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in the States, it's like the strip club is off limits. And then when you're in a foreign country, it's like, hey, this this other country is off limits. Right. And so it was always Columbia. It was always the fun places we wanted to go that seemed to be off limits. Right. Um, so we traveled a bit. I remember we took a space safe flight uh, and then we had to get rerouted onto commercial and we stopped in San Salvador. And so we get off the plane for a bit because they wanted to refuel and we're just walking around the compound. We couldn't leave the airport. And I saw up on the roof, you know, there was a gunner up there whose weapon was just at me, Mm. just followed me. And then there was one for my mom. And then there was one for every single person, you know, that was, that was walking. And I was like, okay, I wasn't as, I wasn't as scared as I guess some other people would be, you know, I was like, okay, this is just the reality of it. Um, But that was one of the first times of like, okay, this is. People don't love America everywhere we go. And that yeah. that was kind of new to me because I'd been so embraced in Ankara and people yeah. just love, and all over Europe, people were like, we love your money. We love you. Sure. This was the first time of like, oh, okay. So being, being cute little American girl is not going to yeah. do anything for me. Got you. Where did you go to high school? Allentown High School in Allentown, New Jersey, not Oh, where the song okay. is from. Yeah. Okay. All right. Exit, got you. Exit 7A. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Talk about a foreign country. All right. Yeah. You got to get your passport renewed to go there. All right. So uh, how was Jersey for you? Uh, I mean, and I'm I'm saying this as a very biased New Yorker. I mean, yeah. how, how was it uh, going to all these other countries and then kind of constantly landing back in Jersey? How was, was that trash heap? Well, 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 I mean, was it America for you? Was it like, this is what America is because this is what you knew as America? Or was it, did, could you tell it had its own identity? I like, well, what was that experience like? It was definitely a transition coming back. So when we were at the embassy in, in Ankara, you know, we were walking through the halls and there was a picture, there's a portrait of Ataturk, who of course huh, I knew. Yeah. Um, and then there was the portrait of George Washington. And I'm like, dad, who's that guy? And my dad's like, okay, so well, clearly we really? need to continue. Because wow. Wow. I mean, even in the DOD schools, obviously we learn American history, but I was like five and, yeah, and six. Yeah, yeah, and so, okay. all right, sure. you know, and Ataturk was just everywhere. Um, like all of my you know, books are about Ataturk. So when we got back to the States, yes, it was a, it was a little different, but thankfully New Jersey is a pretty diverse state. And so mm. it's not like we were moving to Nowheresville, Wyoming, where it was like only white people had, you know, a little bit more of a comfort zone going back in. And then of course, going to New York all the time. We lived uh, near McGuire Air Force Base. So the first time around, we lived on McGuire Air Force Base when I was in elementary school. And then after we lived in New Egypt, uh, where I went to high school. And, uh, you know, it was pretty rural area. It's like a lot of farmland. So it was truly the garden part of the garden state. And so, you know, I loved it. It was a really small high school. Uh, I'm still really close friends with a few people that I went to high school with. Yeah. So there's, um, there's like two people that I still talk to regularly from high school, which is kind of amazing considering how much I move. Yeah, that is. Um, how were you doing in high school? Did you feel like you were starting to find your own path, your own voice? I was a classic overachiever trying to please an angry parent. Uh, I'm going to say this delicately because he's an attorney. Um, 
<laughs> my my daughter, we just we really were not getting along at all. And so I was in every single club. I even tried to do sports just to be out of the house, stay out of the house. So I was, you know, my senior year, I was like um student council president. I was editor-in-chief of the the newspaper. Uh, I mean, everything, like I was leader in the mock trial, like everything you could possibly think of, I I was doing uh, and trying to lead to be an overachiever, stay out. And I did all of that stuff and I'm not sure how much of it I really loved because when I went to college, I was like, I'm done doing extracurriculars. All I did was, uh, I wrote crew, that was it. Wandered. Like I kind of gave up everything trying to be perfect. So I don't think I knew who I was in high school. And what did you think it was leading towards when you were doing all of it? Was there any thought as to what you're building college. towards? Like that's okay. That, just to get to a good college. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the whole, the whole goal. Okay. You and know, Mark, of course, looking college? back, I'm like, Oh, why didn't I just do community college and, right. you know, guard. And now I, I have yeah. so much goddamn debt. Uh, yeah. So I went to university of Richmond. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And the big thing there is that they did not have uh, Navy or air force ROTC um, because my dad wanted me to do the Academy or do ROTC. And for me, I saw the air force as a protector of him, like really not being me great to me and my mother. You know, I saw like the fellow officers who like would turn a blind eye when I was getting screamed at in public. And so for me, I had a very precarious relationship with the military where I was like, why do I want to join that organization? I want nothing to do with the military whatsoever. Uh, so we were doing the college tour, my dad and Richmond. I loved Richmond. You know, it was small. It was this really insular, uh, which for some reason, I think after going to that small high school, I just didn't feel comfortable going to like NYU or like a big city. I wanted something small and, and protected. And I also liked at the time they had uh, a male side of the campus and a female side of the campus. So like our wow. side, like our dorm smelled really nice. <laughs> really clean. Uh, so I, you know, I just liked that too. Cause I, uh, you know, pretty old fashioned, pretty conservative person of just, I, you know, was not ready. I think, especially as an only child, not having brothers, like I didn't want to yeah. live with a bunch of dudes. I, yeah. I wanted to yeah. stay in solar. Uh, but they didn't have that ROTC program. And so we fought back and forth over my going to University of Richmond, um, mostly because it was a super expensive school for no reason. I just was like, oh, I really like this. And there was absolutely no reason for me to go other than it was really expensive. Uh, what did you, did you know what you wanted to major in? Or did your dad have ideas of what he wanted you to major in? Since I wasn't going to go military, I mean, for him, he's just, you got to do something where you're going to get a job. I really liked studying renaissance history and art in high school in that limited capacity and i was like oh that seems interesting he's like you're not going to get a job doing that that's stupid uh which i do agree with uh that would have been pretty hard to get a decent job although going to the military wouldn't have mattered right Uh, right. but uh, so i studied political science and i chose the major specifically because it required a study abroad component so i could hit australia on my list of continents to get to Gotcha. So I hit that one, uh, and and I enjoyed it. You know, I really, really liked studying. It there wasn't anything I found that was 
just life-changing for me in college. I feel that I could have gone anywhere and would have been fine. I'm still friends with several people that I went to college with, but I, I would have been fine going to Rutgers. Yeah. And my wallet would have been infinitely yeah. happier as well. Uh, but I think I just wanted to get enough distance between me and my parents, but close enough that I could still get back to my mom. Where were they at that point? They were in Jersey. Oh, they were still in Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Got you. Um, when you were doing poli sci, uh, what was the career path? What were you think? What were you thinking this was going to lead to? Oh man! At the time, I wanted to work at the UN. I wanted to do okay. policy. I wanted to, you know, storm in and change the world. And uh, then, you know, after college, I moved to uh, Kitty Hawk in the Outer Banks, and I became a kayaking instructor, <laughs> which made everyone super happy. I bet. Really yeah. played on my skills, but I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I followed a guy down there, and uh, then Hurricane Isabel hit and the island was kind of wiped. And so I lost my job. And around that time, you know, when my parents divorced, my dad said to my mom, like, New Jersey is not big enough for the both of us. So get out. So she went, she was trying to figure out what she was going to do. So I lived with my aunt and my uncle in Las Vegas for a few months who were absolutely amazing to, to take me in because I was just kind of lost uh, at that and I did some bartending and I tried some jobs. It was really hard to make friends in Vegas. And what years was this? About what time was this? 2004. Okay. Yeah, 2003 to 2004. Okay. All right. Yeah. And finally, I was like, you know, what would be kind of interesting is to study, like, study what Vegas is doing with their water. Because at some point, they're going to run out of water. This would be kind of interesting to study. So I went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies in, in Monterey, California. So I started there for grad school. And I initially started off studying water management because I wanted to come back to Vegas. My mom was moving back to Vegas. And I wanted to get a job either with the city or with one of the casinos looking at how to preserve water. And that's when I met a Marine and we started dating. And he was bitching about the... Um, California titmouse and the endangered species and having to block off training areas because of stupid animals uh, on their beach, because there's nowhere else left in California on the coast for any of these animals or flora to exist. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want to study. And so I reached out to the Naval Postgraduate School. I reached out to the Marine Corps and the Army, and I got a little bit of funding to do some research at Pendleton as well as Fort Hood, looking at how the military adapts its training when dealing with environmental regulations and how it does sustainable ranges. And that's what I focused the rest of my uh, my master's work on. And what was the master's in? Is environmental so science or what is it? Environmental, international environmental policy. Okay. All right. So that's what the master's was in. Gotcha. Uh, but I, I specifically targeted range sustainment on military bases. And then after, I was like, well, I think I'm going to go to law school. It'll be good. So I applied to six law schools and I got like almost immediate rejections from four of them. And I went, all right, now I need a plan B. And so I was reading through, God, I was reading through one of the sustainable ranges reports to Congress. And I was looking in the back and I saw some of these companies 
like some of the defense contracting companies and was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to check these companies out, see if I can apply to some of the jobs. I didn't really feel like a fit in some of them. So I just wrote a letter to one of the companies, um, Mantech. And I said, Hey, I read this report that you put out. This seems in line with what I studied. Here's the work that I did. I would love to work for your company. Do you think you might have something available that's not listed? And I got an interview. And the day that I moved to DC, I got an acceptance letter from one of the law schools. Uh, and so it was a very like sliding doors moment of like, ah, what do I do? But I felt that I committed and I think I was done studying. And so I started at the Pentagon. Wow. Okay. So th- what did that mean for you now to be in the military industrial complex, but still not following your dad's footsteps? You're not a great <laughs> suitor, right? I mean, what, 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 what do, was it kind of, <clears throat> yeah, were there kind of ghosts of your family around? Like, well, how did it feel just to kind of be in that world, but not in that world? Do you know what I mean? So it, it took about a year. Um, you know, the, the phrase of the day was, uh, we train as we fight, we fight as we train. And I had put together probably my 80th slide deck at that point. And it was meeting with congressional leaders. And and I realized like, you know, I keep writing this and I don't necessarily know what that means. And so I thought maybe I should think about commissioning and seeing where that journey might take. So I was open to all of the services, you know, Air Force, I look at the time, uh, I looked very much like my dad, like just, I look very much like my dad. Now I look a little bit more like my mom, um, but kind of a perfect blend of both of them. So like, I don't really want to do Air Force. Uh, and I just was kind of talking to, you know, all of the green suitors that I knew from my job. And I was at a sustainability conference and a two-star general, Marine general walked up to me and he said, I heard a rumor that you're thinking about joining my Corps." what the fuck makes you worthy? And then he turned around and he walked away. And that was that like little switch, you know, that just kind of flipped. And I was like, must prove myself. Uh, You know, some people will say that that's, you know, that's a sign of a true Marine. Other people will say that's just daddy issues where, you know, it's up in the air as to which it is. Um, Or or both. Yeah. Or yeah, same, Uh, same. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wow. Well, that's like the old Marine recruiter thing, right? Like the army recruiters over there trying to go, hey, we'll give you all this money and all that. And the marine recruiters like, fuck you, you're not going to make it. Get out. That's why you know, right? right. Yeah, there's something psychological with that. Okay, so he yeah. says that that is pretty good locker room material. Oh, yeah, it was get your head moving. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of it. Uh, so I, I started going to a personal trainer, and at the time, the defense contracting company I was working with, there were two other contractors: one who wanted to go Marine Corps, one who wanted to go fly for the Navy. And so we would meet at five in the morning at the Gold Gym in. Uh, in Arlington. It was right down the street from where we worked. And I was like, you know what? I'll I'll take it upon myself. I'm going to set the workouts and do it. And after two months, you know, one guy had kind of like dropped out. He didn't want to, he didn't want to work out. So it's just me and the other gal. And I reached out to this general uh, and I said, Hey, I I'm thinking about going to OCS. I would love to get a letter of recommendation, please. He said, Hey, we're going to be at the same conference. Let's talk there. So we met up at this conference and he took me to a bar and in true Marine fashion, like we lined up some whiskey shots and he was like, can you drink like a Marine? Uh, you know, nowadays, like 
and this is stuff that you can't get away with now. Like you cannot get away with that stuff right, today. Right. Um, but we, you know, I was like, sure. You know, so we drank, we talked it over. He grilled me again on like what I was doing to get ready uh, mentally and physically, why I really wanted to join the Marine Corps, what it is I was chasing. And then we walked back to the conference and my boss, you know, come up and he's like, hey, you're late for some of these meetings and then just smelled me and said, well, you're done for the day. Like, you're just go ahead and go away. And as I started walking away, the general was like, I'll have a letter for you. So uh, that's how I... In retrospect, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel like it was a bad move? I mean, there's a part of me that goes, yeah, yeah, that's, it's, there's, there's kind of a rugged vetting process with that, but well, how did it feel for you? Were you like, Hey, that was kind of bullshit. Why'd you, why'd I get run through that? No, I honestly, I think it was just an excuse for him to leave the conference. I think I was, you know, secondary in that where he's just like, <laughs> I just want to drink and now I don't have to drink alone and be a loser. That's fair. Yeah. yeah that's so that's, fair too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, like you could not get away with that today, but it didn't bother me. I, you know, and I, I feel that there was enough guidance given and he was asking questions in a way with, that was kind of driving towards, like, I really need to be sure that you've got these right answers, that you're trying to do this for the right reason. That one, it's not daddy issues that you're right. trying to prove something, you know, you should only be proving something to yourself. And two, you know, my name is going to be on that letter. Am I going to be an asshole right. for putting someone in who shouldn't be there? So that's, that's really what I took it as. When you got to OCS, um, how did it feel? It was weird. I didn't, I didn't feel that I belonged the whole time. Cause I'm not so for Marines, you know, shoot, move, communicate. Right. You know, I could shoot well. Obviously, at OCS, we didn't know that, and I had never picked up a weapon before then. Um, I communicate very well, but moving like I was an okay athlete was not great. So at the start of OCS, you know, they kind of take everybody and then they whittle it down. So at the start, I'm like middle of the pack running. I'm like, sweet, this is great. By the end of OCS, I'm like second to last or the last gal running in, even with good times. And so it's. It was the most humbling experience of my life because, again, I grew up as an only child. I was the apple of both my parents' eyes. I could do no wrong, even though I was constantly getting, you know, screamed at and really started butting heads with my dad. And you know, I was a terrible kid. Uh, I I could do no wrong. I mean, I was a true trophy kid. I got all A's. I did everything. I won awards. Just you know, I I was that kid that people would look at and be like, oh my god, she's going places. Um, and in the Marine Corps, I had, you know, I was 27 when I went in, so I was a little bit older. And then I got there and I had, you know, a 24-year-old grunt who looks at me and he's like, I wouldn't follow you out of the bathroom. And it was incredibly humbling. And one of the great things about the Marine Corps, and again, I don't know if they're allowed to do this today. You know, I, I don't necessarily consider it hazing, but they pick something about you that they know you're insecure about. And for me, you know. Yeah, sure. They could make fun of me because I wasn't fast. Like, I know that. I know I'm not great at this stuff. They picked on me about my intelligence. And like, that was a tough thing because my like mom. Like you were too first, smart. No, 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 no. Okay. They picked on me. Of They constantly went for how stupid I was. Uh, there was particularly one uh, male DI who just knew. And it, but it's a kind of that thing that, I mean, they're like magicians and mind readers where they look at you while they're insulting you and it's rapid fire. 
and they wait until they see, you know, the, like the one blip in your pupils and they're like, nailed it. Um, and so calling me stupid is something, you know, saying that I'm not good at anything. That's that for me. I never, ever cried in front of them. I am very proud of that. I never broke. I never cried. Um, but yeah, the, the stupid thing, definitely. Like I remember one DI and he's like, Hey, so you came in with a master's degree. How much, how much does that cost you? How much debt are you in? And I was like, Oh, this candidates in about $115,000 in debt. He's like, how does it feel to be the stupidest person here and still in that much debt? And it's just like such a crushing blow to talk about my intellect in that way. And it, it was just yeah. constant. Like I could never do anything right. And I'm I'm still friends with several people that I went to OCS with and TBS with. And, you know, they, like, I am a far better veteran. Like I kick ass as a veteran on behalf of service members way better than I ever was as a Marine. And I wasn't a bad Marine. Uh, I wasn't in long enough. You know, I was only in for for three years. Um, it's just when someone's like, give me your top five most locked on Marines. I'm not on that list for anybody, you know, and it, it's something that, you know, still hits me today, but you know, at OCS, I think they kind of honed in on the, like, you think you're too smart to be here. And I needed to be taken down several pegs and OCS did that. I think better than any other organization possibly could have. Do you think you were spoiled? Oh God. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents never said no to me. Like to this day, I'm still working on being better and more financially responsible just because it's like when you're never told no, you have no concept of money Yeah. and that instant gratification. And, um, so it's, yeah, I was, I was very spoiled. When did you see changes happening? Was it right after OCS or did it take three years or was it even after that? When did you start to see personality changes? I think it was pretty soon after OCS. So, uh, I, I was dating uh, a Marine officer and, you know, the day of OCS graduation, like where I'm just kind of, you know, like so happy that I'm leaving, but I'm just emotionally and mentally exhausted. And I'm pretty much broken at that point. Like I realized that, you know, I probably, I probably wouldn't have been all of the DI's first choice to, to graduate and make it, you know, I did everything that I needed to do, but I just, I wasn't great. And, you know, he proposed to me the day of graduation. And I think he knew that like, that was the time to propose because I needed that morale boost. I needed that emotional wow. boost. And I probably would have said no at a different point. So like, we hadn't been dating long, but I mean, that's kind of the military too. It's a thing of like, oh, if you like each other and you want to date, you've got to get married so you can get stationed together. Uh, so that was kind of the plan. And, you know, I said yes. And marriage didn't last, um, obviously. And I just kind of became a little bit more withdrawn and quieter. Uh, I remember when we were at TBS, you know, there's a few months in and you start talking to your platoon commander about the different jobs that you might want to have. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in public affairs. Now today, people that know me now would be like, oh my God, yes, of course you'd be public affairs. But at that time, my Commander's like, you're actually 
pretty withdrawn. Like you, he's like, you really don't have a big personality. You kind of need to, you know, be more out there. And I realized like, okay, this, this was a lot harder for me than I thought. It was hard to be myself and try to be a decent Marine. It was one of those, like, I wasn't, I was funny enough, but couldn't back it up by being a stellar Marine. You know, you can't make jokes if you're not killing it. Um, So I don't think I got the confidence from the Marine Corps until maybe three or four years after I was out. Why? Because at that point it had settled in or what, what was the lag time? The lag time. So there was so much shame. So I got hurt early on and it could have been an easy fix surgery, but the Navy was just like, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to med board you. Like we're, you're not worth keeping uh, is essentially the message. Um, yeah. So, and that, you know, that hurt, especially because I had done some really cool things for the Marines, you know, at a, at a, you know, an early rank. So I had a detail as um, an aide for for a one-star, about to become a two-star, as a second lieutenant. And I served as the division adjutant for a bit. And then I was down at Camp Lejeune, and I was working on the things that I used in my master's degree, and that I was actually working with farmers and foresters to help keep their land in a working condition that would be compatible with training and low-level military flying routes. And so I was actually doing things that I had studied and I was doing great things for the Marine Corps, trying to keep our training ranges operational, trying to keep as much land intact. And so for the Navy, Navy Med to say, like, we're we're just not going to fight to keep you. Like that's a hole that takes a really long time to heal. And so then when you get out and I think so I'm still friends with plenty of people that I served with. But when you're on your way out, there's a lot of times, especially earlier in your career, like all of a sudden you kind of notice people just like backing away. So they're not shitbirds by association, which I totally, I didn't get it at the time. I totally get that now. Um, And, you know, my, my husband at the time was still in. And so I moved to, I was at Camp Lejeune. He was at Cherry Point. I moved to Raleigh. Uh, Cause he was going to, you know, and so he would go from Raleigh to Cherry Point. And so I was alone and isolated because during the week he was with his buddies at Cherry Point. So basically like a single Marine playing video games, pizza and beer, doing Marine shit. And then he would get home, you know, and I, there was shit to do around the house. So I felt very isolated in that sense. Yeah. Um, I took the first job that I could get and it was in sales. It was a recruiter trying to get businesses on board to hire veterans, which is, you know, kind of noble, but I'm not a good salesperson and I will never sell against the military. And so if it's a thing of a guy calls and he's like, should I stay in? Should I get out? Like my job was to tell him to get out and come to one of our you know, recruiting events. And I never did that. Um, you know, cause I, I very much see the power and the awesomeness in a very stable government career. <laughs> you know, as someone who's in the government, it's a fantastic living that can provide you. Private sector, you know, it's really hit or miss. Um, so it took several years, my getting out, dealing with being so isolated and not having friends around um, before I really came into my own and kind of was like, okay, yeah, I'm a veteran. Like, I didn't last in the Marine Corps, but here's what I got from it. And this is what I'm going to take. And do better in the next thing. And I'm, 
I still work on it every day. What was your branch in the Marine Corps? What was your so I uh, so admin. So okay. yeah, so right. um, yeah, I was division adjutant uh, on a detail as well as an aide. Uh, but the you know the last billet that I had was working down at Camp Lejeune on the special projects, essentially compatible land use. Yeah, how did the injury happen? I <laughs> I fell off the rope. I it was like Wiley Coyote, just walking off the cliff style. I like get nearly to the top and go to hit the top log and my legs were not on the rope. And as another group of Marines are getting a safety brief, I come crashing to the ground. And from just sheer humiliation, I pick up my pack and start running. Sure. And I get to another obstacle and like go to throw my leg over and I'm like, fuck, I'm paralyzed. Um, Like, thankfully I was not, but I was like, I can't feel anything. So yeah, it was early in training, but I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, I still had another like two and a half years where I was able to do work. So a lot of times they'll put you in my company, uh, you know, the, the kind of like a holding cell, uh, but I was farmed out. I was actually able to do constructive things out in the fleet for the Marine Corps, go down to Camp Lejeune, actually, you know, serve on staff, uh, go be an aide at headquarters Marines, uh, you know, do adjunct work. So I was really lucky in that regard and really grateful that I got to actually serve in the Marine Corps, not just in a training capacity. That was, I, th- I think yeah. that helped really soften the blow that I actually got to be a Marine and do Marine Corps things, except not getting a deployment, which will haunt me till I die. Sure. And I, I yeah, I, it's, we've talked about it a bunch on the show, but yeah, I mean, there's always that, right? There's always looking up and going, well, I did this, but I didn't do that. And that really would like, everybody's got that, right? It's like, right. well, I, I still didn't manage to do this. If only somebody had shot at me in anger. Oh, that would have been great. You know, <laughs> it's always something, right? Um, what other jobs did you consider? Because it's interesting to me, look, when, when you were talking about your childhood, I was like, you seem like such a natural for, contra what the DIs would say, intelligence work. Like you have, lang- you have a facility with languages, you have a lot of international travel. Um, did you consider that at all? I I don't think I would have been able to really do good intelligence work because, you know, my mom is my best friend and she's got the biggest mouth. Like oh, she, okay, she that's has the yeah. slip that, that sinks ships for sure. Um, and I, I just, at the time I was like, that doesn't really appeal huh. to me to be so clandestine to just be one of those people. Cause I, I get so annoyed in DC when I'm like, Oh, Hey, you know, what do you do? And they're like, Oh, I work for one of the three letter eight. And I'm like, you're such a douchebag. Like, <laughs> just come up with a better cover story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, the intelligence work, it didn't, it didn't appeal to you. It just didn't, Interesting. didn't appeal to me. Interesting. Okay. Um, did you think it was a career when you got in? Did you think it was oh, going to yes. be 20 years? Really? I, so I drink the Kool-Aid so early on. And was just, I'm, I mean, it's the most romantic organization, you know, everyone running around, proving themselves, getting screamed at together, just, you know, it sucked every second of the day. And then it was just, I'm like, I can't imagine my life is anything else. And, but now seeing some of my girlfriends struggle, you know, 
some who left after four years, some who left after eight, some are who uh, you know are about to pin on lieutenant colonel. Seeing the struggles that they're going through, I'm not sure I would have made it as far. Uh, I think I probably would have ended up being incredibly frustrated with how the Marine Corps still treats women, uh, you know, how that would have impacted a family, uh, you know, because that's incredibly hard. I don't know more than maybe three female Marines who are married to the same person they were when I met them. Like, you know, it's just, it's a tough life. And I, I think I spent several years also dinging myself because I had romanticized it so much, you know, and now the reality is like, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with where I'm at. When did it become apparent that it was not going to be a career for you? Oh, when the Navy said, thanks. Bye. Oh, really? So it was at that moment. It was really their choice. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was like, I'll just get the surgery and I'll keep, I'll keep going. I will fight it. I will do whatever I can. Um, You know, they, I mean, you've, you've alluded to this already, but I, I want to just kind of underscore, dig deeper with it. What was it like for you then getting out? I mean, obviously you're alone and obviously you're, you know, transitioning to a not ideal civilian job. Where did you think your life was going? I mean, you have a marriage, right? You have a civilian job. So you have something, some boxes ticked. Did you have any idea, like what what itches needed to get scratched? Where did you think your life needed to go at that point? I was so lost. I mean, we we found a house. So I married the the second marriage. Um, I married the, the nicest human being, you know, because I was just like, I just want someone to be nice to me, and he was fa- like a fantastic human being, um, but is not well. Like we just weren't a match at all. He didn't want to travel, like. He wanted to get a house in North Carolina and that's where we're going to retire. And at the time, like that sounds really great. Like some stability sounded really, really great. And then I'm out there by myself, you know, on two acres in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. (laughs) Oh my God, what am I doing? I'm trying to grow vegetables. I can't do this. This is insane. Um, So I had no idea what I was going to do. I started looking at jobs and for military sustainability, the areas that you could find work were California, Texas, and DC. And guess which three places my husband refused to move to. So I really just didn't know. So I I was like, well, F it, I guess I got to have kids. Like that's, that's the next step. That's going to save everything. Um, Thank God that didn't happen. Um, But that's, that's where I thought the next step was going to be. And I was just going to have to learn to deal with low level disappointment for myself. How much of that was pinging back on that idea that you had been that trophy child, that you had been the one destined for greatness? Was there, was there kind of a reckoning that you were going through where you're like, shit, maybe I'm not, or shit, I've got to pedal faster if I'm going to be what I thought I should be at a younger age. Was there any of that? So that reckoning came during OCS where I was like, oh my God, like okay. maybe these DIs are right. You know, after, uh, you know, being up at two o'clock in the morning on, on Firewatch of being told like, you're going to get all your Marines killed. I'm like, maybe they're right. Maybe I, maybe I do suck. Maybe I, like my parents were totally wrong. Right. Um, being in that place where I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to, I'm just going to end up being a miserable, like 
a miserable working mom. That's, that's all that's destined for me. Um, I started thinking, okay, that's not going to work. I need to figure out what is going to make me happy in this situation. And if there's one thing that I was able to fall back on, it's that I am really freaking resilient. Like more than anything, that is the lesson I think I got from growing up in the military, from growing up with a dad like mine, is that I can bounce back from anything. And so I was like, okay, this is not the ideal situation. I love my husband. Like he, you know, he and I are both safe. Neither of us died in combat. Neither of us have PTSD. We're going to be okay. I'm going to figure this out. And I mean, I, I, I didn't. We ended up getting divorced because I just, I couldn't figure that out. Um, but it was that thing of like, I'm going to try. I know myself enough to know that I, I cannot just paint myself into a corner. I'm going to figure something out. When you talk about figuring something out, does that mean I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of the overachiever that you had been like, was there a sense that, Hey, motherfucker, I got to fucking get back to who I was. I need to get back to the straight A's or what is it I can do straight A's at? Was there any sense of that as you got into the civilian world? Yes. And so one of the first things I did, I said, all right, I can change almost nothing about my situation except my job. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm not doing something in my background. I'm going to find an organization where I can do something in North Carolina, like to keep my husband happy, that will take care of my need. I, I need to be fulfilled professionally. Like I'm not one of those people that like, oh, if I have a great, rich personal life, my job can suck. I need to be doing something towards meeting a goal, a mission. And um, a good friend of mine from grad school worked with Environmental Defense Fund. And I said, hey, who do you know in the Raleigh office? Like, here's my resume. Here's my stuff. I can be somewhat useful. And so I got an interview uh, with my soon-to-be boss, who is now the administrator for the EPA, uh, Michael Regan. Um, And he's just... He's, he's a brilliant man. I mean, he's unbelievably well-suited for the job that he has. And he, I think, saw me for what I was at the moment. Like, kind of lost, kind of broken, really smart, really driven. All they had open at the time was basically his admin assistant. And he said, you know, I'll take you on. And I said, can you give me some room to play with some initiatives? Mm. I said, you know, you were one of the leading environmental organizations on energy, but you're not working with the military, who's the biggest user of energy in our state. And well, that second, sorry, Department of Transportation, and then the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, we've got three huge bases. We've got Seymour Air Force Base, which is one of the Air Force's largest. We've got Fort Bragg, uh, now Fort Liberty. Uh, and I said, we've got Camp Lejeune. There's so much that we could be doing on the energy side here will you give me the space to just try to figure something out? And he was very gracious. He gave me a little budget uh, and some time to do that. And I was able to create a defense energy initiative that our donors really, uh, you know, they gravitated towards. They started giving some more money to it. We got some significant press time on it. uh, And he let me run with that. And then I eventually became the military energy coordinator for Environmental Defense Fund. and. 
it was that that I started to feel that competitiveness and not competitive with anyone else, but competitive with myself again. Sure. Sure. And so that really led to me just feeling more like myself and being like, okay, I can do something. I really wanted to, I guess, prove to myself and also I think prove to the military as well that fine, you kicked me out of uniform. I'm still going to do something for you. I'm still going to serve you guys. And I really loved that job. Like it was fantastic to be able to do that. And I will always be super grateful to, to my boss for that. How long were you in that job? I was there. So I was at EDF for five years. Uh, I was kind of the admin assistant for two years and then moved over full time to. Why did you leave? I got a great offer. Uh, I got headhunted randomly um, for the uh, Solar Ready Veterans Initiative out of the White House. So President Obama set up this initiative Solar Ready Vets, which was going to take advantage of DOD's SkillBridge program. Which, oh, yeah. so if you're if you're in the transition period, and you're in good standing, you can go get on the job training at a private sector job, still getting your military benefits paycheck. Uh, and the hope is that once you are ready to leave, you just transition right into that job. So we took advantage of that. Took advantage of kind of the solar boom, and I went and joined DOE. Uh, it was like three times my salary. Great opportunity, but it was in DC. And so. How did it feel to get headhunted though? That must've been pretty affirming. It was awesome. So I had, I'd been part of some different groups that were talking about climate change and the nexus of climate change in, in the military. And so my name was just being, you know, circulated a bit and it, it felt very reaffirming. It was one of the first few steps in being like, I'm back. Yeah. I'm back to my normal self. Um, how long were you working at DOE? I was there for two years. Um, so one of the things, I guess, for, for good or bad, being so used to moving along with my family, like every few years, yeah. it's just kind of part of me of like, okay, you've done a job, you've wrapped something up. It's time to move on. Uh, I was able to get, uh, seven more bases on board for, for the initiative, uh, was able to kind of hand deliver it to the White House ahead of schedule, got it all wrapped up and was like, all right, it's time for me to move on and to go do something else. And I went back over to the Pentagon. To do what? Uh, so as a contractor, I went back over to the Office of Secretary of Defense on operational energy. Oh, wow. Which, okay. yeah. So I was getting deeper into energy, back into defense. Well, you know, it was really starting to be seen as you know, preeminent in my field, which made me incredibly happy. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what you're talking about when you say you're starting to feel like a better veteran than a service member, right? Yes. You know, I understand. So going back to those slide decks, when I was first a contractor, before I joined, where it's like, you know, we, we train as we fight, we fight as we train. This is the operational. I now understood yeah. what it was I was talking about. I understood some of the realities. I understood the, the doctrine. And for me, that made such a huge difference. So, I mean, you can kind of, you know, if if I were trying to be impressive in an interview, I would say, you know, I I just did my three years as a as a mental exercise, as an academic exercise right, to right. to do that and try to wipe under the rug and not mention right. all of the the trauma. <laughs> um, but right. uh, but yeah, it got me back to being like, you know what, I'm I am damn good at certain things that I can serve the military with. 
And that's my goal. And that's what I want to do. So in the midst of all this and this ascending scale of excellence and becoming on brand and finding yourself and kind of coming full circle with all your aspirations, where the fuck did playwriting fit in? (laughs) So when I came up to DC, I was a geo bachelor. So I would spend part of the time in DC and then go back home to North Carolina, hoping that the larger salary would draw my, my husband, um, there was a time I went back for a weekend and he said, the next time you go up there, you need to find a permanent place to live. So that's how, that's how I stopped being a geo bachelor, moved to GC full time. I was walking around and I saw a flyer for the Armed Services Arts Partnership for a, just a, a writing workshop, a playwriting workshop in 2016. And I said, sure, I will try that. You know, I've I maybe did some creative writing. My mom has some stories that I wrote when I was in third grade. I think she's saving them for when I win my first Tony so she can sell them. <laughs> uh, and I said, sure, I'll try it. And so I went to this workshop and the instructor, he's like, your writing is good, but you seem really angry. Might I suggest you try out comedy for a bit? Try just working some of this stuff out. And the Armed Services Arts Partnership has a comedy boot camp class. I got into the class six weeks long. And I said, sure, fine. You know, I'll try it. I'll go to the graduation show and that'll be it. And turns out I didn't suck at it and I absolutely loved it. So I focused exclusively on stand-up okay. for a few years. And then a and buddy talk of mine. About, talk about what that meant. When you say you oh. focus on, were you, do you, were you starting to get gigs? Were you starting to work local clubs and get stage done? So, so I, this is why I could never be a, a full-time comic. I don't like being out past nine o'clock. Oh, yeah. And the hustle. So I have some good friends who, when they left the military, you know, they're doing this full time. They're they're comics full time now. And the hustle is unbelievable. You know, going to an open mic and then having four more shows, you know, that did not appeal to me at all, which is also why Mm -hmm. I say government work is really fantastic. The stability of knowing that I can chase some dreams, but come home and have that safe, stable job is so important to me. But the comedy, yeah, I mean, I, I was doing pretty well. And I think if I put all of my effort and energy, I could be, you know, a mid-level touring comic at this at this point, you know, working all across the country, having a somewhat stable career. Um, but that didn't interest me. That, that lifestyle just does not interest me. And I truly am just in awe of people that can do that. Again, mostly because I like to be on the couch by nine o'clock. So playwriting came about because I was thinking of other ways that I could start to be more creative, do longer form things with writing. A buddy of mine reached out and he said, Hey, do you, there's this playwriting competition, short one. Do you want to collaborate on something? I said, you know, I don't know anything about playwriting. I don't, I don't understand the format. I said, I'm, I'm not really sure I'm a good person to partner up with. And then I thought about it for a bit. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to try to write something. And I had been toying with these characters uh, that ended up being in pot shots um, for a while. I was like, oh, maybe I should write a book on it. And they just kind of sat there. So I wrote this other play in two and a half days. And it ended up getting picked up for the Salem State University 10-minute playwriting festival in, in 2021. And 
was like, okay, I think I got this. This interests me. And so then I focused on pot shots. And from there, it just kind of, once I got pot shots, which is slightly autobiographical, I got that into a place where something opened in me where I was like, oh my God, this is, this is everything that I want to do. I want to be able to talk about how I'm feeling through other characters. Mm-hmm. Cause I like mm-hmm. doing, I like telling jokes and being able to work through some issues that I have, but the ability to pour it into different characters just snapped with me. You know, just when you find, like when you find your tribe, you find your medium, you find that art that just speaks to you. And that was it. And I just couldn't stop writing. Now, the weird thing that I always find with playwrights, especially ones that aren't necessarily, I mean, it's not like you're not around great theaters in DC, but I mean, do you go to theater? Was theater part of your cultural vocabulary at that point when you first started? So growing up uh, at McGuire Air Force Base, it was a pretty short ride up to New York. So I spent several years. I mean, Broadway was a near weekly occurrence. Really? Oh, yes. Wow. My, wow. my parents were huge into theater. We were up there almost every weekend. Uh, it was mostly musicals, which I liked, uh, but I, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to see you know, Chekhov um, huh. for sure. But it just got me into that theater, which I really loved. I loved being an audience member. I loved consuming art. And so over the last few years, I'm like, okay, now I can be a creator of it has just completely changed that. And musicals don't appeal to me at all. I have no interest in a song about a divorcee who didn't last long in the Marine Corps. That I'm sure those could be good lyrics, but that does not interest me. I was really taken. You got to rhyme something with divorcee. That's the problem. Yeah. Now that's going to be towards the end of this interview. I will have, I will have a word, Uh, you know, so my favorite plays are Biloxi blues Mm. uh, and a few good men. And I've always loved Aaron Sorkin's just rapid fire. Mm. That's because that's how my dad and I exchange a lot. That's how I grew up is, you know, my dad and I were kind of sparring partners Mm. on that and being able to have that really fast paced witty repartee and so i really gravitated towards that uh, in some of my plays and you know musicals just didn't didn't really appeal at that end Uh, but i in the last six months i started working on my first full-length piece Uh, i picked it up and then had to put it down Uh, in august of 2022 i was diagnosed with stage three cervical cancer and so that just kind of it ground to a halt all all the playwriting because that's all I could focus on. So I stayed with comedy and was able to do some shows. I remember I, uh, in October, November of 2022, I went to chemotherapy in the morning, got on a plane to Vegas, did a show with Rob Riggle on the strip, and wow. the next morning flew home so that I could go to chemo Jeez. again. Um, Were you talking about it on stage? Did you use it? I did mention. Um, yeah, I, I did mention it. And when I look at the video, most people, they, they had no idea. They could not tell at all. Uh, but when I see the video, I'm like, oh, my God, what were you doing? I must have been on 50 different pills. Wow. I just wow. was in tons of pain, couldn't sleep. Uh, but it comedy really helps take the edge off for me, you know, trying to get through it. It gave me a, a real reason to kind of get up and think about things and you know, try to process it out. 
but playwriting, I just, I couldn't write. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. Just yeah. that part of my brain had just really closed off. Uh, so Was it hard to be alone? Did it help just being out in front of people as opposed to sitting and having to think about stuff in your own head by yourself? Oh, I, my mother moved in with me for 10 months. Wow. Wow. I was never alone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I say that with all the gratitude in the world. <laughs> uh, and I am so lucky that I was in the position that my mom could come stay with me. But, you know, in the times where it was really bad, I got so sick. I mean, chemo really destroyed me. Uh, you know, in the times that I couldn't eat, I couldn't move, I couldn't even drink water. I was so glad that my mom was there. In the moments where I was feeling better and could do things, right. sweet right. Jesus, this house was not big enough right. for the right. two of, of course. us. Of course. Uh, yeah, because yeah, also I can't create in a space with other people. I can't, even if she's being quiet off in the corner, Yeah, yeah. I need to be alone because I like to talk out my dialogue as I'm writing it uh, and working through that. So it really, it just shut me off of being able to do a lot of that for a while. So when I was finally healthy enough in May of last year, she moved back home to Vegas and I just couldn't stop writing. I just had so, so many things to write. I'm only working on one play right now about a woman with cancer but I just had so much to say in, in all, all other areas. We kind of like the tourniquet had been released. You just had a yes. rush of blood. Yeah. 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 And you know, with the pills being tapered off and gone, I felt like my brain was back. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Are you good now? Are you cancer free? Uh, so I'm in, I'm in remission and I yeah. just had another scan. So this is two scans where I am cancer free and in remission. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, when you go through such intensive cancer treatment as I did, I had three kinds of radiation and chemo, oh. you know, it destroys your body. I, I have this joke about oncologists and drone operators basically being the same people because they have that target, you know, and as long as they kill the terrorists, the rest of the village, not their problem, <laughs> you know, that's and funny. So, that's and, a funny bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to rebuild the whole yeah. village right now gotcha. after it being decimated and that is tough and it's weird because it's an alien body to me. Like I'm not the same woman. I don't look the same. I don't smell the same. I don't feel the same. Uh, so that's kind of a tough thing to to do. But health wise, I'm at a solid like 85 to 88 percent cool. back to being good. How do you feel creatively right now? Are you still in that sweet spot where you're getting a lot of stories? You're getting a lot of momentum and inspiration. Yes, it's. Absolutely, which is you know both good and bad because I'd love to focus uh, on some things, but at the same time, just I'm I'm still in that euphoric stage of like fuck, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna write everything. Uh, so you know I have a growing list of about twenty different play ideas, ranging from five minutes to full length, you know, sixty minutes of, of what I want to do. Uh, and so I think the next year is really going to be about prioritizing my writing. I think that's what I'm going to focus on of really trying to stay, stay tied to one or two pieces and every once in a while let myself play, but just, you know, I want to be able to finish a full length, not just start and work on it for 15 years. I want to be able to start and finish. And so the goal is that I'm going to finish my first full length by the end of this year. Have you seen your work on stage? Uh, for staged readings. And okay. the, yeah, so there was only one, uh, 
you know, production that I I did, I got into uh, the Player Theater in New York, their short play festival. The theme was Boo. And my short play, Torture Chamber, you know, I directed it. So I had to cast it, produce it, direct it. Uh, so that was kind of incredible. And it was, you know, way off Broadway in Chelsea. I did not love the production and the directing part of it. I really just love the, the playwriting. But I will say the stage readings just kind of blew me away. Uh, just being able to see particularly um, anything that was military related. So like torture chamber and chaotic neutral, not related to the military. The ones that have that military component, particularly a female veteran, just watching someone else get in my head with the words and, you know, for the most part, being able to portray exactly what I was looking for, what exactly what I was envisioning. I, man, I don't think any of the drugs and I was put on some really good drugs. I don't think any of them matched that feeling. How many performances did you direct? Was it just one performance? Can you ask again? Was it one performance? How many performances did you have? Uh, four. So for Torture Chamber, it was four nights. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a four night festival. So I had that for four nights uh, and the rest I've had you know, one night readings. Um, right now, as you look at what's, coming up and and you know all the different projects that you are kind of fantasizing about and the two that you're kind of picking to front load what is your battle rhythm with writing how much do you do every day how much do you want to do how much should you do so i'll start with the should so i am a huge stephen king fan and i read his on writing so mm-hmm. you know of course you should be writing 200 words a day which does not does not happen Right. Um, I, I write when I get the spirit. And I think that's also one of the gifts of having a full-time job that's separate from that is that it's just kind of when the spirit moves me, I always have note-taking gear on me. I can always just start writing something and working on that. Uh, but I'm, I'm a Dramatist Guild member and every Saturday they have silent writing sessions, uh, which I join, which I absolutely love. You know, everyone checks in on Zoom, tell people what you're working on two hours writing in silence, and then you check back in at the end of the time. Mm. One thing I found, you know, once I, if I tell myself you're not going to edit, I can actually get so much done and write tons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I'm, I'm aiming for at least one night a week as well that I'm going to write for, for three or four hours. Uh, In addition to that Saturday. Yeah. I I need to start doing more. So I, was just notified they're going to announce it. I'm, I'm allowed to say this because they're just they're going to announce it. I think this week or next. Uh, the uh, New Perspective Theater Company in New York they have the uh, Women's Work Short Play Lab. They accept six women uh, in the cohort, and you do a 30 minute play. Like you write it in six months, and then they produce it. I was just accepted to that, so I'll be going up to New York once a month, and it's going to be a lot of writing. I mean, you're expected to have a draft done of a 30 minute play in the first three weeks. And then you keep working on that draft. So that's going to take a different level of discipline in writing. And so I'm really going to have to figure out how that's going to work. But it's, it's just going to get that discipline of getting it done, sticking to a timeline and making it happen. That's, um, that's really exciting. Congratulations. That's freaking awesome. I mean, how cool is that? And it's, what is, you know, it's, it is interesting. You keep coming back to having the stability of a full-time job. 
and in playwriting it's more than maybe any other art form i think that's really true because playwriting breaks your fucking heart because you do it you put it out there and you realize nobody makes any money off theater and it's really fucking nice to have all the wasta of having a great run having a great performance and still not sweat the money part because you know that you're not you weren't relying on it to make or break you you know um and i think that gives a peace of mind that i think is probably very healthy for playwrights not the playwrights i mean everybody wants to make a shit ton of money off it and god willing everybody will but i think more than any other art form just because the overhead can crush your margins so much i think that's crucial that you have that stability and that it allows you to keep doing work and generating work and keep the enthusiasm high um, without the roller coaster ride of emotions that I feel like writers can go on. Does that make sense? Sort of. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm not sure how different my art would be if I had to rely on it for an income. I, I'm not sure if that would tie me more creatively or make me take more risks. I, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, the freedom that I feel with knowing, and especially as a cancer patient, having health insurance. Yes. Oh, hundred percent. Um, I, you know, the ability to write when I want to write, to submit to what I want to submit to and, you know, just say, you know what, I'm not going to write today. I'm actually going to go see theater. It's such a luxury. And I realize how much of a privilege that is. And so for that, you know, one of the things I find as a as a veteran artist is that I have like a goddamn duty to talk about issues and to bring to light certain things that I know that I struggled with in the military and that others are struggling with in the military. And using that, you know, there are certainly pieces that I write that are just for me, just passion projects. Sure. Um, but talking about sexism in the military or talking about suicide in the military, you know. Being able to use art to talk about those things, I feel a certain sense of duty that I have the time and ability to do that. And that's something that I should carve out part of that art for and, and be able to do. And I feel really lucky that I can do that. And I think if I had to rely on playwriting for my income, I don't know if I have that freedom to do that. No, I, I think that's fair. Um, it's fine. I mean, I used to think that it made sense to kind of burn the boats and hey you're all in and that'll create greater art and yeah I, I mean everybody's different but i don't know the more folks i talk to the more i'm like well, it's good to have some stability and it's and and it, you, know, you said something that i think privilege is kind of a dirty word these days but i think theater is a luxury item and it's a privilege to be able to do it and you kind of need a little bit of little bit of stability a little bit of ability to to enjoy the process of theater and not be clinging to it so desperately that like shit this has to go otherwise i get evicted from my apartment you know that's that it's a little bit there needs to be a little bit of lightness i think um i don't know this is very anecdotal analysis that i'm doing but based on the people i talk to it seems like yeah it's kind of nice when people have a little bit of of give in their lives and they can they, they can enjoy the process more what do you see, you know, you talked about some of the major themes that you're looking at or that intrigue you. Do you have any sense of where you want your writing to go 
Do you have any sense of what you want to be known as or what is a Stephanie Klein play or what you want a Stephanie Klein play to be? Right now, I'd say across across the five short plays that I have and even in you know several scenes for the, the full length, it's taking dark subjects and having some really good punchlines with it. And I think uh, that comes from being the comic, you know, during, um, after a performance or stage reading, you know, they were asking questions of the comics and or of the, the playwrights. And one of the questions was, you know, what's your process? And for me, I said, you know, it's weird when I have the idea in my head, I'll come up with a punchline and then I will create the scene around that. If I really love the line, which it seems it's a terrible idea. Uh, and it, it's not, it does not work for full length play, but for shorter ones, you can get away with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but that's what I like. I, the ability to cut tension just with such good quips and dialogue. Like I, you know, that is my strong suit and that's, it's very important, but it also tells me how much more I have to grow as a playwright and as an artist, because I have that one strength and that's kind of all I got right now. And it's a, it's a solid strength. And I, I am trying to get better. I'm taking tons of classes. I mean, I've, I've taken lots of classes. I've you know studied at the Kennedy Center for the Playwriting Intensive, the Shakespeare Theater, uh, through the Chicago Dramatists. Anyone can always get better. Uh, and it's something that I really want to work on of how do I craft a full story? How do I actually get everything that I want out of that character, not just relying on snark? I think that's kind of a big goal for me is to move beyond. So I do want to be known for great dialogue, but I think this year I'm going to try to figure out what else I'd like to be known for in that storytelling. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, definitely you can always scale great dialogue. Um, do you think of it though? Do you think, I mean, starting with the punchline, does that immediately make you think that it's going to be snark? Not always. I, I mean, I think in, so Pachets has surprised me a, a few times. So the last stage reading that I had, uh, you know, and that's the other beautiful thing about plays is that what I hear in my head hasn't right. always translated. Right. Um, you know, for me, it was a very like back and forth, you know, particularly so when um, my main character, Jake, when he's like, I, you know, I got my leg blown off and Sam's like half your leg. He says, fuck you, Sam. For me in my head, I heard that very quickly. And the last stage reading I was at, they did it more playfully and a little bit slower. And it totally changed the tone of it. There was no snark in it whatsoever. And I was like, oh, all right. That really works too. Um, so it's, I'm also starting to learn more of what it is that I'm hearing in my head when I put it on paper. Doesn't always translate. And sometimes my translation is not the best one. And yeah. a little bit of that letting go of control, which is kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it'll be interesting to see how you scale it for a full-length play and what scales with it. Um, if you say, you know, when you say, uh, you know, you feel comfortable with the dialogue, but you're looking for what else you can get better at. For you, where do you think you're weak? What do you think you're not as good at? For characters that I don't 
for characters that don't have a part of me in them, okay. I struggle with making them a fully realized character. Uh, we had to do an exercise at the Kennedy Center Playwriting Intensive of just, you know, two pages of dialogue with two different characters. And so I just kind of made it up on the spot. And everyone knew, like, it was just like an instant thing, like, oh, you know that lady. You have met that lady. You have no idea who that kid is. They just were like completely different people. This person is not fully realized. So if the character's not uh, autobiographical in some sense, they're much weaker, which, Mm. I mean, it it certainly makes sense, but it's, you know, that's, it does not need to be as blatant as as it is. I should definitely work on that. Uh, But another is, you know, with stage plays, yes, it's dialogue driven, but there's so many other elements that that you can use. So some, you know, I've taken some classes where use lighting more, use sound. So in the full length that I'm working on now, I'm trying to use a cemetery as one of the characters and the things that go on with it. So the sound of the birds and the light and the temperature and really having that help drive some of it as well not just the two people who are talking because also with the full length, you got a little bit more time to use up. You can, you can fill that space, but using other elements of production, I think is one of the big things I'd like to work on too. Mm. Uh, it doesn't always have to be bare bones, black box theater that you're writing for. You sure. can start writing, dreaming a little bit bigger, getting some, some good sound and lighting in there. Well, that's great. That's great. Do you feel like this is kind of a incredibly self-aware question? And I don't know if it's possible to answer this. Seeing your life's trajectory and how it's gone so far and coming full circle and kind of finding your niche in the job market and continuing to become more and more and more of a subject matter expert. Where do you think your mark is going to be made? Do you think it's going to be there? Or do you think it's going to be in playwriting or as a writer or is it both? Do you have a sense of how that's going to play out? You know, when I first started in government work, I said, you know, I want to be a political pointy or I want to be an SES. Like that's, I want to be an SES. And the more that I've worked with SESs, huh. um, I don't necessarily think I'm the best personality for that. And so it's, you know, I think I'm going to be a fantastic GS-15 until I retire. Like, I think that's going to be me. I think I'm going to, my mark will be made in budget lines and policy that no one but 11 people across DOD will read, but it will make an impact. It will be good work, but not even my mom will understand what it is that I do. Right. Um, For playwriting, I think that's, that's where I can kind of leave the the legacy. And you know, I was thinking the other day, like what I would put on my tombstone. I was walking by, I live close to Arlington National Cemetery. And honestly on there, like, I just want someone to put that I was good to animals. Like that's the legacy that, that I really want. And, you know, someday I'll write a play about, about dog rescue. Um, but I don't think people are going to remember me for energy work or climate work. And I don't know how far I'll get with playwriting. I mean, obviously, like it would be my dream to win a Tony or just to be nominated. Uh, but we'll see. You know, there's there's no reason that it can't happen. Uh, 
And, and I, I feel bad sort of even asking the question because I hate to boil it down to like accolades because um, that is such a cheap way of measuring success or fulfillment or satisfaction. So maybe let me put this a bit more holistically. Where are your itches getting scratched the most right now? What feels best to you? What makes you happiest? It's the, it's after the two hours of silent writing, when I look at four pages of dialogue that I put together, I'm like, yeah, that, that was good work. Mm. That makes me happy. Like my, my brain is a little bit tired. Like I've, you know, spent the energy, but it feels good. The dialogue, it feels natural. It's funny. It says something, it hits on, you know, at least one major topic you know, one major issue that I'm trying to go after, or it just reveals something different about the relationship between the two people. If after, you know, a writing session, I can go back and read that dialogue and it makes me feel either the same feeling as I was writing it, or it makes me feel something new for me, that is the best itch scratcher. Like that's what does it for me. That's pretty fucking great. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be hard to go back to work after talking about my whole history. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. It's really to scramble your brain for the rest of the day. But Ooh. no, this is uh, this has been such a fucking blast. And um, you know how much of a fan we are of Pot Shots. And I guess I should say this in conclusion. Like we've had people, not just the judges, but other folks that heard about pot shots wanted to read it and as we're teeing it up for this season at, the, at our parlor um yeah there's a lot of very turned on people that were like lobbying and people that were not even actors that were like shit if i could somehow do this like this speaks to me you 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 hit on some i don't know some primal you hit people in some primal places with this, that it, it's turning people on in a way that they really want to not just see it. They want to do it. They want to embody those words. So um, congratulations. So that's a fucking monumental accomplishment to make people feel that way. Thank you. Yeah. That's, I, I will say if, if someone was like, you could get a Tony award or make people feel the way about any play that they feel about pot shots. I think you're right. The, the awards are always nice and that's how people will remember me, but how I would remember myself yeah. is getting people to feel the way that I feel when I see it performed or when I reread it. And I can only pray and hope and work that I can make that happen in other work moving forward. You will. I mean, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't, that'll only improve. And even if you shit the bet on one or two more, it's just getting it better and better for whatever's coming after. Yeah. Um, Glad we got to talk to be continued. Yes. And I'm so excited to see pot shots. Listen, if you're, if you're up in New York, come on up one of these times, you know, take a wrong left turn and end up in Cornwall. <laughs> and we'll, uh, it may be during one of the weeks that we're doing the show. So yeah, we'll figure it out. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was Stephanie Klein's profile in havoc. Hope you guys got a lot out of that. I, I just feel like people are going to dog ear that one uh, digitally. That is a uh, that was a keeper. I thought a lot about 
so much of Stephanie's life after that in relation to my own or, and other folks I'd heard about. And, you know, uh, as always the juxtaposition between war and art always leads to a lot of interesting stuff, but even just as a veteran, um, just a female veteran, even some of the stuff was really interesting. Um, you know, it, it stayed with me. I thought Stephanie's comment on what the Marine Corps would allow now for, I guess you would not call it fraternization, but um, the way, I don't want to say relations because that replies a relationship, but the way that a senior Marine officer would interact with a female considering joining the Marine Corps, um, I think is, is really interesting. And I, I'm certainly one of those that, you know, believes one of the great virtues the military gives to young people is the ability to withstand criticism, encounter tough love, and um, get a kick in the butt to motivate you going forward. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, it's interesting the way that that lies now and uh, what that could mean, but certainly how it helps Stephanie and the fact that the very person that was giving her ammunition to join the Marines um, was also, you know, giving her ammunition in terms of uh, motivation, I should say, and maybe negative reinforcement uh, to motivate her was also um, one who was actively taking positively positive steps to get her into the Marine Corps um, when, you know, he felt like this is the juice is worth the squeeze with her. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Um, one of many interesting little points uh, in that interview for me anyway. And we'd love to know what you guys thought. So obviously, as always, leave comments, questions, comments, snide remarks in the reviews. We love seeing those. And um, what else do I have to say? We started off this episode with a note from this episode's sponsor, uh, Second Mission Foundation. And I want to take a moment to thank this episode's other sponsor, my own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater. Uh, everything you need to know about VetRep, you can go to VetRep.org and find out all about the website. The website, again, is VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. And while you're there, the best thing to do is to scroll partway down the homepage, click on the link that will allow you to subscribe to our literary blog for free. And when you do that, what that means is every day in your email inbox, you will receive a little piece of veteran writing poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, or an image of veteran artwork. Um, and you'll get that every day, seven days a week. And then below that, we put a bunch of shameless plugs about whatever's going on at VetRep, so you can always stay in the loop. And we do have a lot of stuff going on, uh, a lot of content that we're getting ready to push out in the 24 season, and a lot of big announcements about some very, very, very cool stuff happening um, that you guys may very well want to be aware of. So go to vetrep.org, V-E-D-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Okay, my thanks as always to Mike Neal for putting together this episode. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, our thanks to Stephanie Klein, and we will see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. Havoc.